Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowicz. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times. Episode 31, Where's My Remote Control? 1896 to 1898. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Tesla, The Life and Times. I hope this finds you all well as the autumn begins here in the Northern Hemisphere. You'll notice that it's been a while since the last episode, and I think I can trace the moment that things went wrong. It was when I foolishly, and despite promising never to do so ever again, because I know that it jinxes things, posted to the show's Facebook group, Hey gang, look for the next episode on Monday. That was six months ago. Naturally, life stuff got crazy right after then, and then I got COVID. Yep, after 829 days of successfully playing hide-and-seek with the virus, the Rona got me. It got all of us, actually. It hit my wife the hardest. She went to bed early on a Friday and got out of bed the following Tuesday. We all had it mild, all things considered, thanks to our up-to-date vaccines, but boy, is the post-COVID brain fog a real thing. I was kind of out of it for about 10 days after I was no longer symptomatic, and then I got a really weird side effect that I hadn't previously heard about. COVID throat. You can look it up. It became really painful to talk for weeks after I was otherwise recovered. If I had to talk for more than a minute or two at a time, it was like razor blades, and my voice would just end up squeaking. I got the worst case of laryngitis I ever had. Not great when part of your job is interviewing people for articles that you're writing. Anyway, that wasn't completely gone for nearly six weeks post-COVID. Not fun. So, zero out of ten, one star, do not recommend. All this to say, between COVID and brain fog and razor blade throat and then three kids at home for the whole summer... I was delayed. But with all three kids finally in school, I find I have more time and energy to devote to the podcast at long last. I won't make any firm promises, see my comments above about the jinx, but look for episodes at a more regular cadence from here on out. And speaking of episodes... Unlike many recent episodes which focus just on a single year or even just part of a year... This episode, dealing with Tesla's work on radio control, and the next, which looks not only at his return to work on wireless power, but also his much-storied earthquake machine, begin to take in longer stretches of time, and they overlap a bit. So, for the next couple of episodes, I might be jumping back and forth a bit chronologically as we cover a four-year stretch between these two episodes. Hopefully, everything remains clear and comprehensible. And once we go out west to Colorado with Tesla in 1900, which should be in episode 33, a number that would no doubt have pleased Tesla, and return to New York in 1901, I would expect that, much like the first few episodes of this podcast, we'll be getting back to episodes that cover longer and longer stretches of years at a single go. That's because, post-war of the currents and after the lab fire of 1895, we're really in the back half of Tesla's life and accomplishments particularly once we talk about Wardenclyffe and the failures of his magnifying transmitter, Tesla becomes much more of a reclusive figure between the 19-teens and his death in 1943. However, as I mentioned in my interview episode with Dr. Mark Seifer, reading his new book, Wizard at War, has led me to rethink some things I thought I knew about Tesla in his declining years, so we might still need some more episodes than I think to cover those final years of his life. In any case, I think the era of blockbuster 45-minute or hour-long episodes may be coming to an end over the next several months. But I've been wrong before, so stay tuned. Even once we're done talking about the chronology of Tesla's life, however, 
I still have a few more episodes planned that are focused on specific topics about his life that were hard to fit into the chronological narrative of the podcast. So look for those eventually, along with a couple more Tesla Goes to the Movie episodes where we look at Tesla's portrayal on the big screen. So that's briefly my plan for the next year or so of the show. I look forward to putting those episodes together for you, and I hope you'll enjoy them once they're ready. Now, before we're ready to start this episode, I first want to give a word of thanks to those who left ratings and reviews. Over on Facebook, Zach Bayer says, This is the best podcast I've listened to. The episodes are extremely well-researched and are equally as well-delivered. I've listened to the War of the Currents episodes at least four times each, and I've learned something new each time. Great work, Zach. I'm not sure even I've listened to all of those four times each. Over on Apple Podcast, listener Douchy gives the show five stars, saying, Really great show. Nice historical context provided throughout. Listen to this to better understand the reality of Tesla's life and legacy. Bobski123 from the UK says, Excellent stuff. Stone Woodchuck from the US says, A balanced view of what is known and unknown, not just taking the view that makes the best story. Miss Susie, also from the U.S., says, Nice podcast. Great information with humor and sound effects. Definitely a scholarly and reliable source. And No Nicky Name 100 says, Somebody call Ken Burns. The script is finished. Aw, thanks, No Nicky Name 100. I'm a big fan of Ken Burns' work, and if I had all the time in the world, someday I'd take the audio from these episodes and put together a Ken Burns-style YouTube series about Tesla using slow pans across old photographs. And listener E. Kim exclamation mark, which I'm choosing to pronounce as E. Kim, said, This is a fantastic podcast. The detail, the background, and the fun facts. It is amazing. And a special thanks to all who participated in the fundraiser for Ukraine by leaving a review over on podchaser.com. Because of all the companies who were matching donations, I'm not sure how much exactly we raised, but every little bit helps. So thank you again for doing your part. Thanks to Romeo Parsi. Aneska177, D Dashner79, AK Shacy, KKJA1313, Vox Pop, Ginger James, and Margiropolis. And just before we get going on this episode, a couple of corrections and a couple of bits of housekeeping. First, I hope you've all had a chance to listen to my interview episode with Dr. Mark Seifer about his new book, Tesla Wizard at War The Genius, the Particle Beam Weapon, and the Pursuit of Power. I was thrilled to have a chance to talk to Dr. Seifer, if only so I could learn that I've been pronouncing his name wrong this whole time. It is not Seifer, as I have been saying for literally years and dozens of episodes. It is in fact pronounced Seifer. We at the Tesla The Life and Times podcast regret the error. And speaking of names I've been mispronouncing... Listener Carl was kind enough to email on the very day that episode 30 debuted to say, Great podcast, but I respectfully recommend you Google how to pronounce what I had been saying as Rotengen. So I did, and I was not even close. What I said started with an R, and it ended with an N, but I got everything in between wrong. In my defense, it is spelled Rotengen, R-O-E-N-T-G-E-N. But for the record, the correct pronunciation of the name of the guy who discovered x-rays is... Rantgen. One more time, please. Rantgen. We at the Tesla The Life and Times podcast also regret this error. And as for that housekeeping, one piece of good news and one piece of dumb news. 
The good news is that with some of the free time I finally have without children underfoot, I've been able to start remastering the early episodes of the show. I've received, rightfully, a number of complaints over the years that the levels in the early episodes are all wrong. Much of the music and sound effects were at ear-shattering volume compared to my vocal track. And that was down to me not thinking through my audio workflow 100% back when I started the show. It didn't occur to me that when I normalized the volume on the whole track, all of the careful volume adjustments I did to make the sound effects not make your ears bleed went right out the window. So, as I think I've mentioned before, a few episodes ago I switched up my audio processing for when I mixed the final files, and I added a step that I think has solved the problem. I've now gone back and started to do this for all previous episodes. I think it makes a big difference, particularly for the first five or so, and makes for a more pleasant listening experience. I've uploaded the remastered audio tracks for the first couple of episodes, so go check them out and see what you think. I will roll out other remasters over time, since I have limited amount of upload to my podcast host each month. I'll likely do maybe one new episode and one or two remastered episodes as I have extra space until I'm all caught up. And if you started listening to the show after September the 26th, 2022, well, you will always have had the updated files and so hopefully are thinking, what's all the fuss about the first episode sounded fine to me? Okay, now the really dumb news. If any of you go looking for my Twitter account that I mention at the end of each episode, uh, don't bother. Because one of the other things I got up to during the break between episodes was managing to get myself permanently banned from Twitter. No warnings, no temporary ban, no stint in Twitter jail to sit in a corner and think about what I did. I never even had a single infraction. Just right to permanent lifetime ban. So, how did I manage to anger the algorithms, you might ask? Did I do something silly like, I don't know, foment rebellion against the government of the United States? Sadly, no. My crime? Making a writing-related pun so bad, so groan-worthy, so eye-roll-inducing, that the Twitter bots were like, No, you're a monster. You're done. Dumb, right? I thought of maybe starting up an Instagram account for the show to take the place of Twitter, but then I realized I'd have to start taking pictures of my food and posting shots poolside in a bikini and tagging everything hashtag blessed and hashtag best life, and I'm not ready for that. So if you want updates about the show, our Facebook group is where it's at. Now then. As I mentioned, between this episode and the next, we're looking at a four-year stretch, 1896 through 1899, and doing so with some overlap, so I thought we ought to divide up the and times section of the shows. So we'll do 1896 and 1897 this time, and 1898 and 1899 next time. So, notable historical events in 1896 include, on January 4th, Utah is admitted as the 45th U.S. state. On January 5th, an Austrian newspaper reports Wilhelm Röntgen has discovered a type of radiation later known as X-rays. On January 7th, American culinary expert Fanny Farmer publishes her first cookbook, the Boston Cooking School Cookbook, which became a widely used culinary text and which is still in print more than 100 years later. In addition to over 1,800 recipes, Farmer provided scientific explanations of the chemical processes that occur in food during cooking and also helped to standardize the system of measurements used in cooking in the U.S., including standardized measuring spoons and cups, as well as level measurement. 
Before the cookbook's publication, other American recipes frequently called for amounts such as a piece of butter the size of an egg or a teacup of milk. On January 28th, Walter Arnold of East Peckham, Kent in England, is fined one shilling and receives history's first speeding fine for driving his automobile eight miles an hour, about 13 kilometers an hour, when the speed limit at the time in England was two miles an hour, or just over three kilometers an hour. On April the 6th, the opening ceremonies of the 1896 Summer Olympics, the first modern Olympic Games, are held in Athens, Greece. On May 18th, in the Plessy v. Ferguson decision, the U.S. Supreme Court introduces the separate but equal doctrine and upholds racial segregation. Plessy is widely regarded as one of the worst decisions in U.S. Supreme Court history. Despite its infamy, the decision has never explicitly been overruled. A series of the court's later decisions, beginning with 1954's Brown v. Board of Education, which held that the separate but equal doctrine is unconstitutional in the context of public schools and educational facilities, have severely weakened Plessy to the point that it is considered to have been de facto overruled. On June 4th, the Ford Quadricycle, the first Henry Ford developed, is completed, the start of Ford's eventual automotive empire. On June 23rd, Liberal leader Wilfrid Laurier defeats Charles Tupper to become the seventh Prime Minister of Canada and the first Francophone to hold the position. He takes office on July 11th. These days, you can find Wilfrid Laurier on the back of our $5 bill, and with a little creativity, if you get one of the older, non-polymerized $5 bills, you can even make him look like Mr. Spock. Google Spocking Fives, and you'll see what I mean. Fascinating. On July 9th, William Jennings Bryan delivers his Cross of Gold speech at the Democratic National Convention, which nominates him for President of the United States. We talked about Bryan and this speech back in Episode 8 on The Gilded Age. On August 17th, Bridget Driscoll is run over by a car on the grounds of the Crystal Palace in London, the world's first recorded case of a pedestrian killed in a collision with a motor car. There was a coroner's inquest that lasted six hours, with the jury returning a verdict of accidental death. The coroner said he hoped, quote, such a thing would never happen again. The Royal Society for the Prevention of Accidents, however, estimates more than 550,000 people had been killed on UK roads since 1896. On August 27th, the shortest war in recorded history, the Anglo-Zanzibar War, fought between forces of the British Empire and the Zanzibar Sultanate, starts at 9 in the morning and lasts for 45 minutes of shelling. On September 19, 1896, the Knickerbocker Athletic Club held an all-day carnival of competition at Columbia Oval in the Bronx. Modeled on the ancient Olympic Games, and including chariot races, this event featured the first-ever marathon run in the United States. Thirty men ran a roughly 24-mile foot race on the roads from Stamford, Connecticut to the Bronx, finishing with two laps around the stadium track. Most did not finish. The Times reported, But the greater number of those who entered found mud and stones, hills and humidity too much for them, and, after valiant struggles and combats with breath and strength, came back to New York in trains. The winner was John McDermott, an Irish-American runner born in Manhattan. Little is known about McDermott outside his running accomplishments other than that he was a lithographer by trade. His time for this first marathon? 3 hours, 25 minutes, 55 seconds. For comparison, the winner of the men's 2021 New York Marathon finished in 2 hours, 8 minutes, and 22 seconds. The women's winner finished in 2 hours, 22 minutes, and 39 seconds. And I'm tired just reading that. On September 22nd, Queen Victoria surpasses her grandfather, King George III, as the longest reigning monarch in British history. 
It's a record she would hold until December 20th, 2007, when Queen Elizabeth II became the longest reigning British monarch. On November 27th, also Sprach Zarathustra, which you can hear playing in the background, composed by Richard Strauss, is first performed in Frankfurt. And on December the 25th, John Philip Sousa composes his magnum opus, The Stars and Stripes Forever. What is heaven's name? It is Stars and Stripes Forever, sir, by John Philip Sousa, an American composer of band music in the early 20th century. Yes, yes, I know that. Computer, shut off the music. Notable historical events in 1897 include, on January 22nd, in the journal Engineering, the word computer is first used to refer to a mechanical calculation device. On January 23rd, Elva Zona Hester is found dead in Greenbrier County, West Virginia. The resulting murder trial of her husband is perhaps the only capital case in American history where spectral evidence helps secure a conviction. Have you or any of your family ever seen a spook, specter, or ghost? Initially judged a death by natural causes, complications from childbirth, Hester was later found to have been murdered by her husband, following testimony from the victim's mother, Mary, in which she claimed that her daughter's spirit had appeared by her bedside, insisting that her husband had killed her. Mary was able to convince the local prosecutor to reopen the case. Whether he believed her story of the ghost is unknown, but he did have enough doubt to re-interview several people of interest. Eventually, Elva's body was exhumed, and it was discovered that she had indeed been murdered. Her husband, Erasmus Shue, was arrested. It turns out Mr. Shu had been married twice before. His first marriage had ended in divorce, with his wife accusing him of great cruelty. His second wife had died under mysterious circumstances less than a year after they were married. And while in jail awaiting trial, Shu began running his mouth about his plan to wed seven women in total. He was found guilty of murder and sentenced to state prison, where he would die in 1900 during an influenza epidemic. The state of West Virginia has erected a state historical marker near the cemetery in which Elva is buried to commemorate the only known case in which testimony from a ghost helped convict a murderer. We're ready to believe you! On April 19th, the first Boston Marathon is held, with 15 men competing. It was won by John McDermott. Remember him? Well, he'd clearly been in training over the winter. He improved his time from the Bronx Marathon considerably. He finished the first Boston Marathon in 2 hours, 55 minutes, and 10 seconds. On April 30th, J.J. Thompson of the Cavendish Laboratory announces his discovery of the electron as a subatomic particle, which is over 1,800 times smaller than a proton, at a lecture at the Royal Institution in London. He later received the 1906 Nobel Prize in Physics for completely different discoveries, which, if you ask me, is just showing off. On May 6th, John Jacob Abel announces the successful isolation of epinephrine, also called adrenaline, in a paper read before the Association of American Physicians. Millions of people who require EpiPen injectors to save their lives in the case of potentially fatal allergic reactions, including one of my brothers, thank Dr. Abel for his work. On May 26th, Irish-born theatrical manager Bram Stoker's contemporary gothic horror novel, Dracula, is first published in London spawning more than a century of books, movies, television shows, and Halloween costumes about vampires, sparkly and otherwise. On June 22nd, the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Victoria is celebrated in the United Kingdom. 
No other British monarch will celebrate such a jubilee until Elizabeth II in 2012. On July 17th, the Klondike Gold Rush officially begins when the first successful prospectors arrive in Seattle, spreading word of their find. News of gold started to stampede of an estimated 100,000 prospectors to the Yukon in northwestern Canada between 1896 and 1899. Some became wealthy, the majority did not. Just a few days later, on July 25th, writer Jack London sails from Oakland, California to join the Klondike Gold Rush, where he will write his first successful stories. On August 10th, at the Bayer Pharmaceutical Company, pharmacist Felix Hoffman successfully synthesizes acetosalicylic acid after isolating the compound from natural sources. The company markets the painkiller under the brand name Aspirin. On August 31st, Thomas Edison is granted a patent for the kinetoscope, a precursor of the movie projector. On September the 1st, the Tremont Street subway in Boston opens, becoming the first underground metro in North America. On September 21st, Francis P. Church responds to a letter to the editor in the New York Sun newspaper from eight-year-old Virginia O'Hanlon, asking whether Santa Claus was real, in what becomes known as the famous Yes, Virginia, There is a Santa Claus editorial. On November the 25th, Spain grants Puerto Rico autonomy. This autonomy lasts until the 25th of July, 1898, when the United States invades Puerto Rico during the Spanish-American War. We'll talk more about that next episode. Also in 1896, the first electric bicycle is invented by Josiah W. Libby, and Dos Equis beer is first brewed in Mexico, in anticipation of the new century. Dos Equis is Spanish for two X's, a reference to the 20th century, the number 20 in Roman numerals being XX. And that's your fun fact for today. Stay thirsty, my friends. Famous births in 1896 include, on January 14th, John Dos Passos, American author most notable for his USA trilogy. On January 20th, George Burns, an American actor, comedian, and vaudevillian is born. In show business from the age of seven, Burns normally had a female partner, and though he had an apparent flair for comedy, he never quite clicked with any of his partners until he met Gracie Allen in 1923. We talked about her in episode 30, as you'll recall. And all of a sudden, Burns later said, The audience realized I had a talent. They were right. I did have a talent. And I was married to her for 38 years. On February 19th, André Breton, French writer and poet, is born. He is best known as the co-founder, leader, and principal theorist of surrealism, which reminds me of one of my favorite jokes. How many surrealist painters does it take to screw in a light bulb? A fish. On April 17th, Señor Wences, Spanish ventriloquist and comedian, is born. His popularity grew with his frequent television appearances on The Ed Sullivan Show during the 1950s and 1960s. Later, he became popular with another generation of fans on The Muppet Show. There's only been one genius in this business, and that was Senior Wences. A little lipstick, some hair, and his hand. And the guy had a career for 85 years. Do you remember? Huh? All right, all right, all right. Talk to me about genius. On May 30th, Howard Hawks, an American film director, producer, and screenwriter, is born. Critic Leonard Moulton called him, quote, the greatest American director who is not a household name. His most popular films include Bringing Up Baby, His Girl Friday, To Have and Have Not, The Big Sleep, Red River, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and Rio Bravo. He's been cited as an influence by directors such as Martin Scorsese, Robert Altman, Jean-Luc Godard, John Carpenter, and Quentin Tarantino. On June 19th, Wallace Simpson, the American-born Duchess of Windsor, is born. On August 15th, Gertie Corey, an Austrian biochemist and recipient of the 1947 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, is born. 
She was the third woman to win a Nobel Prize in Science and the first woman to win the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for her significant role in the discovery of the course of catalytic conversion of glycogen. On August 26th, Bessie Cooper is born. An American supercentenarian, that is, someone who lives past the age of 110 years old, Bessie was the last surviving person on Earth born in 1896 when she died on December the 4th, 2012. At the time of her death, she had been the world's oldest living person since June 21st, 2011, a total of 532 days, or one year, five months, and five days. On August 27th, Leon Theremin, Russian inventor most famous for his invention of the theremin, one of the first electronic musical instruments and the first to be mass-produced, is born. If you've ever heard the Beach Boys song Good Vibrations, you've heard the eerie tremolo of the theremin. On September 24th, F. Scott Fitzgerald, an American writer best known for his novel The Great Gatsby, is born. On November 14th, Mamie Eisenhower, future First Lady of the United States, is born. On December the 1st, Grigory Zhukov, Soviet military leader and marshal of the Soviet Union, is born. I know I've recommended the movie The Death of Stalin on this podcast before, but you should really check it out. It's a fantastic black comedy. Jason Isaacs portrays Zhukov in the movie, complete with the marshal's almost comical collection of medals and ribbons pinned to his tunic. And on December the 6th, Ira Gershwin is born an American lyricist who collaborated with his younger brother, George, to create some of the most memorable songs in the English language in the 20th century. With George, he wrote more than a dozen Broadway shows featuring songs such as I Got Rhythm, The Man I Love, and Someone to Watch Over Me. Famous births in 1897 include, on February 10th, John Franklin Enders is born. An American scientist and recipient of the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, he invented the technique that allowed for the polio virus to be produced in culture, leading to the creation of a polio vaccine. Enders was also part of the team that created the first deactivated measles vaccine, as well as an attenuated measles vaccine in the 1960s. He's been called the father of modern vaccines, and is sadly likely spinning in his grave these days. On March the 6th, John D. MacArthur, an American businessman and philanthropist, is born. Making his fortune in insurance and real estate, he later established, along with his wife, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, one of the largest private foundations in the United States. If you've ever watched shows like Nova or Nature on PBS, you've probably heard of this foundation, as they tend to fund a lot of their programming. On April 17th, Thornton Wilder, an American dramatist best known for the play Our Town, is born. On April 23rd, Lester B. Pearson, the 14th Prime Minister of Canada and recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize for his role in resolving the Suez Crisis, is born. He once personally scowled at my mother when she accidentally stepped on his toe. On May 2nd, J. Fred Coots is born. He is an American songwriter best known as the co-author of Santa Claus is Coming to Town. On May 18th, Frank Capra, American producer, director, and writer, is born. Capra was one of America's most influential directors during the 1930s, winning three Academy Awards for Best Director from six nominations, as well as three other Oscar wins from nine nominations in other categories. Amongst his films are It Happened One Night, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and best known of all, It's a Wonderful Life. During World War II, Capra also served in the U.S. Army Signal Corps and produced propaganda films such as the Why We Fight series. On May 27th, John Cocroft is born. An English physicist who shared the 1951 Nobel Prize in Physics for splitting the atomic nucleus, Cocroft was instrumental in the development of nuclear power. 
American comedian and actor Moses Harry Horowitz was born on June 19, 1897. He's better known as Mo Howard, leader of the Three Stooges. Moe's distinctive hairstyle came about when Moses was a boy and cut off his own curls with a pair of scissors, producing an irregular bowl cut. On July 24th, Amelia Earhart is born. An American aviation pioneer and writer, Earhart was the first female aviator to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean, was one of the first aviators to promote commercial air travel, and wrote best-selling books about her flying experiences. She was also instrumental in the formation of the 99s, an organization for female pilots. On September 8th, Jimmy Rogers is born. An American singer-songwriter and musician, he rose to popularity in the late 1920s and is widely regarded as the father of country music. He's best known for his distinctive rhythmic yodeling. On September 25th, William Faulkner, an American writer and Nobel Prize laureate, is born. Not only have I been to his house, which is now a museum in Oxford, Mississippi, but I got a special behind-the-velvet-ropes tour of the man's library and his writing office. Uh, I know a guy. Faulkner used to write the outlines of his books on the wall of his office, a technique he learned from his time as a Hollywood scriptwriter, and then repaint the wall before starting his next book. You can still see the outline for his last novel, The Reavers, on the wall in his office. On October 7th, Elijah Muhammad is born. Born Elijah Robert Poole, Elijah Muhammad was an African-American religious leader, black separatist, and self-proclaimed messenger of Allah, who led the Nation of Islam, which he co-founded, from 1934 until his death in 1975. On October the 28th, Edith Head, an American costume designer, is born. Head won a record eight Academy Awards for Best Costume Design between 1949 and 1973, making her the most awarded woman in the Academy's history. Head is considered to be one of the greatest and most influential costume designers in film history, and the character Edna Mode from The Incredibles is loosely based on Head and her look. On October 29th, Joseph Goebbels, chief propagandist for the Nazi Party and then Reich Minister of Propaganda from 1933 to 1945, is born. He was one of Adolf Hitler's closest and most devoted acolytes, and an all-around monster. On November 18th, Patrick Blackett, Baron Blackett, is born. A British experimental physicist known for his work on cloud chambers, cosmic rays, and paleomagnetism, in 1925, he became the first person to prove that radioactivity could cause the nuclear transmutation of one chemical element to another, and he won the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1948. On November 24th, Lucky Luciano, a Sicilian-American mafia boss, is born. Luciano is considered the father of modern organized crime in the United States for the establishment of the Commission in 1931, which was to oversee all mafia activities in the United States and serve to mediate conflicts amongst the five families of New York City, as well as the Chicago, Buffalo, Philadelphia, and Detroit mobs, amongst others. Famous deaths in 1896 include, on January 15th, Matthew Brady, an American photographer best known for his scenes of the Civil War. Using a mobile studio and darkroom, Brady used the new technology of photographs to make vivid battlefield pictures that were reprinted in newspapers around the world and which, for the first time, brought home the reality of war to the general public. On April 30th, Hamilton Diston dies. An American industrialist and real estate developer, he purchased 4 million acres, 16,000 square kilometers, of Florida land in 1881, an area larger than the state of Connecticut and, reportedly, the most land ever purchased by a single person in world history. On July 1st, Harriet Beecher Stowe dies. An American author and abolitionist, she's best known for her novel Uncle Tom's Cabin. On November 22nd, George Washington Gale Ferris Jr., the American inventor of the Ferris wheel, dies. And on December the 10th, Alfred Nobel, Swedish inventor of dynamite and creator of the Nobel Prize, 
Famous deaths in 1897 include, on January 9th, Thomas Gwynne Elger, an English astronomer. He was a selenographer, that is, someone who studies the moon. One of the preeminent lunar observers of the Victorian age, he's best known for his lunar map, which was the most accurate available until the 1960s. He was the first director of the lunar section of the British Astronomical Association, and has a crater, Elger, named after him on the moon. On September 30th, St. Therese of Lisieux, a French Roman Catholic and discalced Carmelite nun, dies. She was dubbed by Pope Pius X, quote, the greatest saint of modern times. And on October 19th, George Pullman, an American inventor, engineer, and industrialist, dies. He designed and manufactured the Pullman sleeping car, used all over rail lines in the United States. Okay then. So, last episode, we spent a lot of time talking about how Tesla coulda, woulda, shoulda discovered x-rays, and how, after they were officially identified, he spent a great deal of time studying their properties and effects. This time, we'll see Tesla turn back to his primary object of study, wireless transmission of power, but not before blowing up what had been one of his closest personal and professional friendships. Throughout 1896, Tesla produced a steady stream of reports on his X-ray research. He published these articles in Electrical Review, the rival publication to Electrical Engineer, run by longtime friend and hype man T.C. Martin. Yeah, boy! Remember this fact, it will be important later. Tesla initially took up X-ray research because, in part, all the cool scientific kids were doing it. X-rays were the new hot thing, after all. But Tesla also thought that by drawing on the skills he'd already acquired with Crookes tubes, which we saw last episode could be altered to produce x-rays, he would either make a further scientific discovery or quickly develop a new product. Tesla produced x-rays of small animals, such as birds and rabbits, as well as his workers, and of his own skull, ribcage, limbs, and vertebrae. As some shadowgraphs took as long as an hour to obtain, Tesla noticed that he would sometimes fall asleep while he was being bombarded by the machine, which, knowing what we know now about the possible harmful long-term effects of x-ray exposure, well, I wouldn't recommend. In terms of his work on x-ray hardware, Tesla insisted that his compact oscillating transformer was ideal for powering x-ray tubes, but he didn't come up with a commercially viable x-ray tube himself. Instead, the firms that were able to develop x-ray products, either power sources or tubes, were those like General Electric that had expertise in manufacturing incandescent lamps, or small scientific instrument manufacturers that had the distribution network to reach scientists and the medical community. And so, after an initial flurry of activity, Tesla soon bored of x-ray research, probably a combination of it becoming clear he couldn't compete with the companies moving actively into this new field, and his realization that x-rays didn't really advance his evolving interest in wireless transmission. It's worth noting, though, that throughout 1896, Tesla suffered from the grip, what we today would call an acute and long-lasting case of influenza. Think of it as the long COVID of its era. Now, Tesla was certainly prone to bouts of ill health, both physical and mental, and from this point on in his life, they seemed to become more frequent and more acute. And while his illness made the New York papers, nobody at the time considered the possibility that his condition might be linked to excessive experimentation with the mysterious new energy of x-rays. In fact, the risk to one's health from x-rays was so poorly understood that Tesla himself wrote, quote, 
No experimenter need be deterred from investigation of Röntgen rays for fear of poisonous or generally deleterious action, for it seems reasonable to conclude that it would take centuries to accumulate enough of such matter to interfere seriously with the process of life of a person. Eh, not so much. We now know, of course, that long-term exposure to x-rays can be very dangerous to one's health, as anyone who's ever worn a lead vest at a dentist's office can attest. Tesla did note pain in the center of his forehead when experimenting with the rays, remember he sometimes sat for hours in front of an x-ray tube, and reported inflammation and blistering on the skin. He attributed these to the production of ozone by the x-ray tubes. We today would recognize these as radiation burns. While Tesla didn't seem to suffer any long-term negative consequences of his dalliance with x-rays, say, like cancer, one wonders if, at least in the short term, bombarding his body with x-rays for extended periods and at various intensities weakened his immune system and made him susceptible to conditions like the grip. And Tesla was far from alone in thinking Röntgen rays harmless, or even beneficial. Edison, whose fluoroscope was already being used for lighting the eye during eye surgery, had become convinced that eyesight could be restored with the use of x-rays. This was based on his observation that x-rays caused blind people to experience sensations and even see flashes of light in their eyes. Tesla doubted Edison was correct, telling some newsmen, quote, Is it not cruel to raise such hopes when there is so little ground for it? What possible good can result? Naturally, this led to headlines once again trying to gin up a fight between Tesla and Edison. Neither took the bait. In fact, the Kentucky School of Medicine helped bring the x-ray work of the two men together. Both Tesla and Edison had previously used x-rays to help find bullets lodged in the bodies of various patients. The Kentucky School of Medicine combined the devices of Tesla and Edison to extract birdshot from the wounded foot of a voter who had received the injury in a fight at an election poll. Uh, apparently, American elections have always been contentious. After developing the x-ray film, which took only 90 seconds to make, every bone was outlined and the 30 pieces of birdshot were plainly visible and able to be removed. To celebrate the triumph and quell any purported hostilities, T.C. Martin was able to coax Tesla into joining Edison and a number of other electricians for a day of fishing off Sandy Hook. Despite a storm and lightning, naturally, Tesla caught what was described as, quote, a flounder of large dimensions, while Edison caught, quote, a shocking big fluke. There's always a bigger fish. In July 1896, Tesla took his first trip to Niagara Falls for his first tour of the power plant his inventions had made possible. We covered this trip in detail in episode 28, so I won't go over it here again. But when Tesla returned to his lab in New York, he found a letter waiting from Sir William Priest, head of the British Post Office. A young man of 22, half English, half Italian, had stopped by Priest's office with a wireless Morse code apparatus based on the work of Heinrich Hertz, and Priest thought Tesla should be aware of this man and his work. The young man's name was Guillermo Marconi. and we'll be hearing a lot more about him in future episodes. Marconi had sought out Priest because Priest himself had experimented with testing induction effects through the ground from telegraph lines, and Marconi had brought along a notebook which reviewed the literature in the field, most likely the writings of Hertz, Lodge, and Tesla. As Tesla later recounted, after experiments with the Hertz device were conducted for the Imperial Post Office in England, quote, Priest wrote me a letter conveying the information that the tests had been abandoned as of no value, but he believed good results would be possible by my system. In reply, I offered to prepare two sets for trial and asked him to give me the technical particulars necessary to the design. 
Just then, Marconi came out with the emphatic assertion that he had tried out my apparatus and that it did not work. Evidently, he succeeded in his purpose, for nothing was done in regard to my proposal. For the rest of the year, Tesla became something of a recluse. Ignoring the pleas of Catherine Johnson to come summer with her, and one supposes her husband, in Maine, and even ignoring letters from his sisters in Croatia, particularly Marika, who asked him why he wouldn't respond. While he was still likely feeling the effects of the grip and maybe low-dose radiation poisoning, the fact was that Tesla now understood himself to be in a wireless race against newcomers like Marconi. Fearing that his inventions would be pirated, Tesla's lab became a more mysterious place. One of the persistent myths about Tesla is that he was so brilliant he never wrote anything down. In fact, Tesla did take notes, but as time went on, his notes became more sparse, omitting details so that should anyone get hold of them, they would be left without key elements of Tesla's theories and designs, elements which remain locked safe in Tesla's own mind. With this fire lit under him, Tesla abandoned X-ray work and renewed his research into wireless. His first patent specifically for wireless transmission was filed just over a year later, on September 2, 1897, with patent number 650353. And with more time to devote to wireless power, Tesla turned to his next major innovation, the development of radio-controlled automatons. Today we might call these devices a kind of robot, a term that the Czech writer Karol Šapek didn't come up with until 1920. But since Tesla didn't have that word, he coined his own, telautomatics. Eh, doesn't have the same ring to it. As you'll recall, Tesla's interest in automata dates back to his childhood. As a boy, Tesla had to overcome the sometimes crippling effects of the visual intrusions that he suffered from. As he often saw such visual phenomenon after specific kinds of external stimuli, he quickly extrapolated from that his belief that all responses, thoughts, and emotions were the result of external stimuli. This is where he came to believe that humans were, in his words, meat machines. In his autobiography, Tesla wrote that controlling his intense visions, quote, led me finally to recognize that I was but an automaton, devoid of free will in thought and action, and merely responsible to the forces of the environment. Though he said the idea of constructing an automaton to prove his meat machine theory was one he considered early on in his career, it wasn't until he had begun to perfect his wireless inventions that he focused on the project, realizing that his receivers could serve as surrogates for the eye or other sensory organs. As he explained in 1898, quote, Endeavoring to construct a mechanical model resembling in its essential material features the human body, I was led to combine a controlling device, or organ sensitive to certain waves, with a body provided with propelling and directing mechanism, and the rest naturally followed. He had begun working on a remotely controlled device as early as 1892, but those early prototypes were destroyed in his laboratory fire. Unfortunately, no descriptions of these early prototypes survive, likely also destroyed in the fire. So it wasn't until the move to Houston Street that he was able to resume his work in teleautomatics and make some striking demonstrations, in many instances actually remotely transmitting the power used to drive the device as well, instead of simply controlling it from a distance. In 1897, Tesla began building a test model with the help of one of his assistants. While Tesla felt his control mechanisms could be used in any kind of vehicle or flying machine, for his first serious efforts at a telautomaton, he chose to build a remote control boat in response to the naval armaments race then underway. In 1889, the dominant naval power, Britain, had decided it needed a new fleet of battleships superior to the combined fleets of its rivals, France and Russia. As these three powers raced to build new ships, the United States, Germany, Spain, and Japan followed suit in order to protect themselves. 
Tesla may have become aware of the naval armaments race from Theodore Roosevelt, who was then Assistant Secretary of the Navy. In November 1897, Roosevelt gave a speech at Delmonico's before the Society of Naval Architects calling for a stronger U.S. Navy. Moreover, Tesla was a friend of Roosevelt's sister, and we know Tesla met Roosevelt at least once in 1899, so it's possible the two might have crossed paths previously. After the American naval innovation of the ironclad warship, which debuted during the U.S. Civil War, wooden warships were out, and steam-powered, steel-armored warships were in. To attack these new battleships, Tesla designed an unmanned, radio-controlled torpedo boat that could carry an explosive charge and be directed by electromagnetic signals. This little boat was the great-grandfather of the Tomahawk cruise missile and the Predator drone. More than that, this single invention not only established all of the essential principles of what came to be known a few years later as the radio, it also laid the groundwork for the cellular telephone, the garage door opener, the car radio, the fax machine, television, the cable TV scrambler, and remote-controlled robotics. One visitor to the Houston Street Laboratory offered the following description of the boat and how Tesla demonstrated it. Elevated on stocks on a table in the center of the laboratory stood a model of a screw-propelled craft about four feet long and somewhat disproportionately wide and deep. Mr. Tesla explained that it was merely a working model which he had made in order to exhibit to President McKinley, and that no attempt had been made to follow the usual sharp lines of a torpedo boat. The deck was slightly arched and surmounted by three slender standards, the center one being considerably higher than the other two, which carried small incandescent light bulbs, a third bulb being fixed at the bow. The keel consisted of a massive copper plate, the propeller and rudder being in their usual positions. Mr. Tesla explained that the boat contained the propelling machinery, consisting of an electric motor actuated by a storage battery in the hold, another motor to actuate the rudder and the delicate mechanisms which perform the function of receiving, through the central standard, the electric impulses sent through the atmosphere from the distant operating station, which set in motion the propelling and steering motors, and through them light or extinguish the electric bulbs and fire the exploding charge in the chamber of the bow in response to signals sent by the operator. Now watch, said the inventor and going to a table on the other side of the room on which lay a little switchbox, about five inches square, he gave the lever a sharp turn. Instantly the little bronze propeller began to revolve at a furious rate. Now I will send the boat to starboard, he said, and another quick movement of the lever sent the helm sharp over, and another movement turned it as rapidly back again. At another signal, the screw stopped and reversed. To control this boat, Tesla had the transmitter generate a continuous electromagnetic wave at one frequency, with a receiver on the boat. With this transmitter, Tesla could rotate the lever, touching one of four contacts. In doing so, he would interrupt the signal being sent to the boat. The signals were then processed by a disk mechanism in the stern. Depending on the number of times a signal was interrupted, the disk advanced a certain number of clicks, which in turn regulated the current delivered to the motor that controlled the rudder. The boat was propelled by another motor, and the current to the motors was provided by storage batteries. Tesla's radio-controlled boat was a remarkable achievement. Working around the limitations of sending signals at only one frequency, Tesla came up with an ingenious electromechanical solution, and the mechanism is amongst the most sophisticated devices Tesla ever created in his career. Up to 1897, no one had conceived of using electromagnetic waves to operate an unmanned vehicle. Tesla introduced the idea into popular culture and engineering practice. Tesla's inspiration for the solution came from telegraphy. During the late 19th century, telegraphy was used not only for sending telegrams between cities, but also for requesting messenger boys, the police, or the fire department using what was called a district telegraph. Seeking a reliable mechanism for his boat, Tesla drew on the circuitry typically used in district call boxes. 
How such an apparently complicated mechanism can be operated and controlled at a distance of miles is no mystery, Tesla wrote. It is as simple as the messenger call box to be found in almost any office. Now, my device for controlling the motion of a distant submarine boat is exactly similar, only I need no connecting wires between my switchboard and the distant submarine boat, for I make use of the now well-known principle of wireless telegraphy. Confident that he had a great invention on his hands, Tesla began drafting a patent application for his radio-controlled boat in 1897. At the same time, he delighted in demonstrating the boat in his laboratory to visitors. According to one source, these visitors included J.P. Morgan, William K. Vanderbilt, John Hayes Hammond Sr., and Charles Cheever. These private demonstrations even prompted Hammond to invest $10,000 in the project, the equivalent of $3.5 million today. And according to Mark Seifer's new book, Tesla, Wizard at War, government officials from the Empire of Japan also made visits to Tesla's lab to see this radio-controlled torpedo for themselves. Just a few years later, in 1904, during the Russo-Japanese War, there was speculation in the press that the Japanese were using remote-controlled dirigible torpedoes to destroy Russian ships and soldiers. It would not surprise me, said Tesla, if by this time the Japanese have succeeded in producing models of my automaton. While Tesla was working on his radio-controlled boat, the United States declared war on Spain in April 1898. We'll talk a little more about that in the next episode, but suffice to say, there was a great deal of excitement about new weapons for attacking battleships. At the electrical exhibition taking place at Madison Square Garden in May of 1898, another wireless entrepreneur, W.J. Clark of the United States Electrical Supply Company, anxious to trade on the wartime hysteria, arranged for a demonstration of his company's radio-controlled underwater mine that could blow up ships. By touching an instrument placed in the southern gallery of the exhibition, reported the New York Times, a miniature Spanish cruiser anchored in the fountain lake on the lower floor, 90 feet away, was blown into the air, together with a considerable quantity of water, which fell on those who were not quick enough in getting out of the way. This dramatic demonstration proved to be so popular, Clark was soon repeating it four times a day. Now, if you read most Tesla biographies, including O'Neill's, Cheney's, or Cypher's, you hear all about how Tesla also demonstrated his boat at the Electrical Exhibition at Madison Square Garden in May 1898. After all, the Electrical Exhibition was organized by Tesla's old friend, Stanford White, who worked with Tesla to fashion a rainbow room of neon lights at the entrance, and it was presided over by Chauncey Depew, another friend of Tesla, and one of the principals in the New York Central Railroad, as well as a U.S. Senator from New York. General Electric was there. So too was the Marconi Company, represented by Tom Edison's son, Tom Jr., who got the gig through T.C. Martin. This was the start of a partnership between Marconi and Edison, in fact, as Edison owned wireless patents which Marconi hoped to get his hands on. So, it would make sense that Tesla would display his boat there as his biographer's outline. However, if you read W. Bernard Carlson's biography, and especially if you go digging around in the footnotes, don't worry, I did so you don't have to, you find this aside from Carlson. Several biographies assume that Tesla must have displayed his boat at the Madison Square Garden exhibition, but like the experts at the Tesla Museum, I have not been able to find any evidence to support this assumption. Indeed, the description of the boat quoted in the text suggests that although Tesla had a working prototype in his laboratory by November 1898, he did not necessarily have a boat that could be operated in water at the time of the exhibition in May 1898. Interesting. It's worth noting that Tesla didn't finish and file his patent application for the radio control boat until July of 1898, and the claims he made in the patent were so extraordinary, the examiners in the patent office at first didn't believe them. 
the examiner-in-chief himself came to New York to see how the boat operated. And it wasn't until after that personal demonstration in Tesla's lab that Tesla's patent for the boat was issued in November of 1898. Given Tesla's concern that rivals were nipping at his heels, as well as his growing secrecy around the lab, I'm not sure he'd take the new torpedo boat out for a spin in front of the general public, lest a rival steal an idea or two and rush to the patent office. If you look at the list of who Tesla did invite to his lab to take a gander at the Telatomaton, they were... The Money Guys. He only let potential investors see it. And indeed, T.C. Martin himself... Yeah, boy! ...later complained that there was nothing new in Tesla's radio-controlled boat and that he had simply stolen the idea from Clark's radio-controlled underwater mine demonstration. Except it's hard to steal an idea if you're demonstrating your radio-controlled device in the next tank over, wouldn't you say? This, again, suggests that Tesla didn't have a boat ready for May 1898. So, if Carlson can't find evidence, and the folks at the Tesla Museum can't find evidence, and with Tesla's growing fear of getting scooped by rivals and the patent office not even believing him, which they probably would have if there had already been a public display six months earlier. Oh, and that's the other thing. Where are all the write-ups in the May 1898 issues of the New York Times or the Electrical Experimenter about this incredible new device? There aren't any, and it's not the kind of thing that would slip by unnoticed. So, given all of this, I feel like it's probably a safe bet to say the boat didn't debut at Madison Square Garden. Oh, Tesla was likely in attendance, sure, but I suspect that someone confused the two facts in the intervening 40 years between the exhibition and when O'Neill wrote that first biography of Tesla. Indeed, it wasn't until he already had his patent in hand that Tesla started up the hype machine. Stories began to appear in the technical press and popular newspapers about his radio-controlled boat, accompanied by bold claims from Tesla that it would bring about an end to war. As he told the New York Herald, quote, War will cease to be possible when all the world knows tomorrow that the most feeble of nations can supply itself immediately with a weapon which will render its coasts secure and its ports impregnable to the assaults of the united armadas of the world. Battleships will cease to be built, and the mightiest armor-clads and the most tremendous artillery afloat will be of no more use than so much scrap iron. Imagine, if you can, what an irresistible instrument of destruction we have in a torpedo boat thus remotely controlled, which we can operate day or night on the surface or below it, and from any distance that may be desired. A ship thus assailed would have no possibility of escape. But I have no desire that my fame should rest on the invention of a merely destructive device, no matter how terrible. I prefer to be remembered as the inventor who succeeded in abolishing war. Oh, is that all? Well, no small feat, that. As Tesla told one of his lawyers in December 1898, quote, I have received from a number of countries propositions for the rights on my invention for controlling the movements and operation of bodies from a distance, and I am generally requested to name the price. In view of this, it is very desirable for me that the patents of the chief European countries should be applied for without delay. Hearing that Tesla was securing foreign patents for the boat, Mark Twain, himself always eager for a quick buck to cover his vast debts, penned Tesla a quick letter from Europe. Have you Austrian and English patents on that destructive terror which you have been inventing? And if so, won't you set a price upon them and commission me to sell them? I know cabinet ministers of both countries, and of Germany too, likewise Wilhelm II. Here in the hotel the other night, when some interested men were discussing means to persuade the nations to join with the Tsar and disarm, I advised them to seek something more sure than disarmament by perishable paper contract. Invite the great inventors to contrive something against which fleets and armies would be helpless, and thus make war thenceforth impossible. I did not suspect you were already attending to that, and getting ready to introduce into the earth permanent peace and disarmament in a practical and mandatory way. 
While the Electrical Review predicted that Tesla's radio-controlled boat would mark a great advance for civilization, the invention was sharply criticized by Tesla's professional colleagues who were, let's say, less impressed. Princeton's professor of physics, Cyrus F. Brackett, complained, quote, There is nothing new about this. The theory is perfect, but the application is absurd. Do you suppose that in the din of battle it would be possible to put into execution those minute and carefully adjusted mechanical experiments, all of which are presupposed by this theory, which require the quiet of an uninterrupted laboratory to work successfully? The fantastically named Amos Dolbear at Tufts College said, The announcement is most amazing, and coming as it does from Tesla, scientists are all the more chary about accepting it. During the last six years, he has made so many startling announcements and has performed so few of his promises that he's getting to be like the man who called Wolf, Wolf, until no one listened to him. Mr. Tesla has failed so often before that there is no call to believe these things until he really does them. Meantime, we are all waiting with much patience and without solicitude. We will believe them when they are done. Ouch! Oh, and as an aside, Amos Dolbear will now be the name of the next D&D character I play. But perhaps the harshest and certainly most stinging criticism came from his friend and hype man, T. Comerford Martin, at The Electrical Engineer. Worried that his journal was losing market share and undoubtedly upset that Tesla was now sending material to the rival Electrical Review, Martin openly attacked Tesla in a November 1898 editorial. Martin slagged Tesla for failing to complete inventions like the steam-powered oscillator and, as mentioned earlier, complained that the principles for the torpedo boat were lifted from Clark's demonstration. Last spring, the ability to explode floating torpedoes under ships from a distance without any wires was brilliantly demonstrated at Madison Square Garden several times a day for a month, wrote Martin in his editorial. Taking that idea, Mr. Tesla has applied the same principle to the electromechanical steering of torpedoes. Martin also rushed into print, and without Tesla's permission, a paper the inventor had recently given at the American Electrotherapeutic Association. Tesla was mad about the paper, but furious that Martin accused him of intellectual theft. I wish I could lay upon the fellow all the forked lightning in my laboratory, Tesla told the Johnsons one night over dinner. Writing a response which was published in the next issue, Tesla cited not his accomplishments, but his honor and the honorary academic degrees he'd been presented with as proof that he was no thief. Your editorial comment would not concern me in the least, wrote Tesla, were it not my duty to take note of it. On more than one occasion you have offended me, but in my qualities both as a Christian and philosopher, I have always forgiven you and only pitied you for your errors. This time, though, your offense is graver than previous ones, for you have dared to cast a shadow on my honor. No doubt you must have in your possession from the illustrious men, meaning Brackett and Dolbear, whom you quote, tangible proofs in support of your statements reflecting on my honesty. Being a bearer of great honors from a number of American universities, it is my duty, in view of the slur cast upon them, to exact from you that in your next issue you produce these, together with this letter which, in justice to myself, I am forwarding to other electrical journals. In the absence of such proofs, which would put me in the position to seek redress elsewhere, I require that, together with the preceding, you publish instead a complete and humble apology for your insulting remark, which reflects on me as well as on those who honor me. In the next issue of The Electrical Engineer, Martin printed that full and complete apology, and the two men quickly put the issue behind them. No, I'm kidding. No, things got way worse after that. In the next issue of Electrical Engineer, Martin published Tesla's letter, as well as the comments from Brackett and Dolbear that Tesla had demanded. However, Martin also opened his editorial with this lovely little broadside. 
One of the foremost electrical inventors of this country, whose name is known around the world, has been kind enough to say that the electrical engineer made Mr. Tesla. This is an attribution that we naturally put aside, for it is a man's own work that makes or unmakes him. But we do plead guilty to the fact that for these ten years past, we have done whatever mortals could do to bring Mr. Tesla forward and secure for him the recognition that was duly his. Not only in the columns of this and other journals, but in magazines and books we have striven with all the ability we possessed to explain Mr. Tesla's ideas. The record is before all men. If there is a line or a word in it that seeks to do Mr. Tesla's serious injury, who says we have ever in word or deed or thought tried to do Mr. Tesla any sort of injury? Lies. Within the last year or two, Mr. Tesla has, it seems to us, gone far beyond the possible in the ideas he has put forth. And he has today behind him a long trail of beautiful but unfinished inventions. By mild criticism and milder banter, not being able to lend Mr. Tesla the cordial support of earlier years of real achievement, we have only very lately endeavored to express our doubts and to urge him to the completion of some one of the many desirable or novel things promised. We believe this to be true friendship. After reading this, Tesla realized that Martin's comments were, in fact, made from true friendship. The feuding stopped, and the two men quickly put the issue behind them. Yeah, boy! No, I'm kidding again. No, no, this was the end of their friendship. However constructive Martin might have made his criticism out to be, Tesla wasn't interested. After this little back and forth in the press, Tesla and Martin were done with each other, and basically never spoke again. But this isn't the last we'll hear from T.C. Martin. Oh no because no sooner had Martin dropped Tesla as his favorite revolutionary inventor than he took up the cause of a new inventor to champion, Guglielmo Marconi. Martin would proceed to give Marconi the same attention and positive press in The Electrical Engineer that he had earlier given Tesla, the coverage that made his reputation. Hell hath no fury like a hype man scorned. This assault from a former trusted ally might seem unexpected, but consider some of the mitigating factors in the Tesla-Martin relationship. Martin had definitely played a key role in building Tesla's reputation within the electrical profession. Between 1890 and 1898, Electrical Engineer published 167 articles by or about Tesla, 40 more than Electrical Review, and 70 more than Electrical World. And it was clearly Martin who choreographed the reclusive inventor's entree into the American electrical arena. So, imagine Martin's frustration when, after hoping to cash in by co-authoring a book with Tesla, starting in 1894, Tesla was freely distributing copies and not paying for the additional copies that he made Martin give him. I made some money out of my Tesla book, Martin confessed to Elihu Thompson many years later, but it was promptly borrowed from me by the titular component so that two years of work went for nothing. Tesla also had the irritating habit of living beyond his means and talking up projects before they were completed. This would have been a source of tremendous frustration for Martin, who had staked at least part of his reputation in the field on his championing of Tesla. So, to have Tesla constantly let him down, Martin might simply have had enough of Tesla imposing on, and even abusing their friendship. And, as Cypher points out, history has, in many ways, proved Martin right. Tesla's oscillators were never a commercial success. His wireless system of distributing light, information, and power in its total form was never realized, and for reasons difficult to understand, Tesla's fluorescent lights were never marketed. On the other hand, Tesla was extremely prolific, and he did build working models of nearly all his inventions. As I believe I've said before, I think of Tesla a bit like I do Da Vinci, 
He simply had too many interests and too much going on for him to focus on all but a few in meaningful ways. That not all of his projects materialized is perhaps understandable given the scope of his efforts. Just don't tell T.C. Martin that. When he wasn't busy feuding with Martin in the columns of The Electrical Engineer, Tesla worked on a second and larger, six feet long, radio-controlled boat. In particular, he had become worried about how to ensure his boat responded only to signals from his transmitter and from no one else's. So, Tesla turned his attention to the problem of tuning and borrowed an idea he had been using in his wireless lighting demonstrations. Much to Tesla's annoyance, visitors to Houston Street often pointed out when Tesla fired up his oscillating transformer that several lamps lit up at the same time, even though he wanted only one specific lamp to respond. To overcome this problem, Tesla had his oscillator generate several different frequencies and then tune the lamps so that they had to receive a combination of two frequencies before they lit up. Now, Tesla applied the same technique to his second boat, devising ways to transmit two signals. But he soon realized that by using the same technique he could, in fact, generate dozens of frequencies and use various combinations to individually control multiple vessels. With this principle in mind, Tesla envisioned that one or several operators might simultaneously control 50 or 100 vessels through differently tuned transmitters and receivers, unleashing a fleet of telatomatons against an enemy. Although Tesla initially promised to exhibit a model of his torpedo boat at the Paris Exposition and direct its movements from his office in New York, he instead demonstrated the second boat to members of the Chicago Commercial Club in May 1899. When the distinguished guests arrived to hear his lecture, they found an artificial lake in the middle of the auditorium, with the torpedo boat floating in the middle. Ever the showman, Tesla invited the crowd to shout out questions, and his automaton would answer them by flashing its lights, shifting the rudders, or setting off exploding cartridges. This was considered magic at the time, Tesla recalled, but was extremely simple, for it was myself who gave the replies by means of the device. In the lecture that followed, Tesla described how he had conceived of this automaton and again emphasized its potential to abolish war. And speaking of war... There is one more thing to mention about the War of the Currents. Think of this as an after-action report. Back in episode 28, I mentioned there would be a final wrap-up episode about the War of the Currents, but as I was writing it up, I realized it would be awfully short. So, since it overlaps with the events of 1896 that we're talking about in this episode, I figured it probably had a place here. You'll recall from episode 28 that there was no love lost between George Westinghouse and his company and the folks at General Electric. Westinghouse had won the coveted Niagara contract, so GE, still a somewhat shaky concern, having only been in existence for three or so years at that point, engaged in industrial espionage against Westinghouse. So Westinghouse hired a Wall Street goon to manipulate the stock market so the value of GE shares crashed. Then GE started spreading rumors that the Westinghouse company was in trouble and would be acquired by GE, causing Westinghouse stock to crash. The two companies were also locked in 300 patent lawsuits, many over AC designs, and such a merger seemed logical since it would save each company a million dollars a year in legal fees, the equivalent of tens of millions of dollars today. Something had to give. And so, the two exhausted combatants did what exhausted combatants do. They signed an armistice. In 1896, Westinghouse reached a patent-sharing agreement with GE that allowed both firms use of the all-important Tesla patents, ending GE takeover attempts of the Westinghouse company. It's always been a danger, but it looms like a shadow over everything we've built here. But things have developed that'll ensure security. I've just made a deal that'll keep the empire out of here forever. As reported in the March 13, 1896 issue of the New York Herald Tribune, 
Quote, The long fight between the General Electric Company and the Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company has been ended. The boards of directors of both companies met yesterday to decide upon terms for the settlement of their differences. At the close of the meetings, the following was issued as a joint statement by the companies. Negotiations between the General Electric Company and the Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company have resulted in an arrangement with respect to a joint use of the patents of the two companies, subject to existing licenses, on terms which are considered mutually advantageous. It has been agreed that after certain exclusions, the General Electric Company has contributed 62.5% and the Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company 37.5% in value of the combined patents, and each company is licensed to use the patents of the other company, each paying a royalty for any use of the combined patents. The patents are to be managed by a board of control, consisting of five members, two appointed by each company, and a fifth selected by the four so appointed. It is expected that the economy is to be affected, meaning the savings from no more lawsuits and reduced costs from not trying to duplicate inventions, will be very considerable, and the two companies and their customers will be mutually protected. The especial incentives which led to the arrangement at this time were the recent decisions in favor of patents of the General Electric Company controlling the overhead system of electric railways, the approaching trials on a number of other important General Electric patents on controllers and details of electric railway apparatus and systems, and other electric devices, and the equally strong position of the Westinghouse Company in respect to power transmission covered by the patents of Nikola Tesla. The companies will stop fighting each other in the courts and will join in prosecuting infringements of their patents. Charles A. Coffin, president of GE, is quoted as saying in the article, How much will be saved by the termination of litigation I cannot say. The savings, however, will be large. By Grabthar's hammer, what a savings. This deal is notable not only for the cost savings, but for the broader implications for the electrical field. Here you have the two largest electrical companies on Earth agreeing to share patents. This means a de facto standard has been established in electrical equipment. No more systems that try to duplicate what another is doing, but do so maybe with less efficiencies so as to avoid infringing a patent. No more incompatible systems based on whose electrical system you installed. One electrical standard built around Tesla's patents. The war of the currents, which had begun a decade earlier, was finally over. Next time, we'll follow Tesla through 1899, as he continues to refine his work on wireless power, only to realize that the limits of what he can do from a Manhattan lab might be coming to an end. We'll hear about Marconi increasingly nipping at Tesla's heels, and consider how close Tesla might have come to destroying his new lab and the building it was in, using an earthquake machine. Thanks for listening to Tesla, The Life and Times. If you're enjoying the show, please spread the word. Tell a friend who you think might enjoy it too, or share a link to the show on your social media. Past episodes, as well as show notes, can be found on our website, teslapodcast.com. You can keep up to date about the show on our Facebook page, and you can also always contact me directly via email at tesla at and definitely not find me on Twitter anymore. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Kotowicz.